0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Lori Wooliver on Bourdain. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. Not only can you connect with us there on social media, but also follow us on any one of numerous podcast platforms. But you can also sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs or food and beverage category for episode number 54 with Bill Buford on Dirt. This is Bill Buford. I'm the author of Dirt. I have spent a wonderful, intense, intelligent afternoon with Trey talking about my book for Books on Pod. Hello, readers. Lori Woolover is a writer and editor who spent many years as Anthony Bourdain's assistant and writing partner. Her new book, which pays tribute to her friend, is called Bourdain, the Definitive Oral Biography. Lori, thank you for the time. How are you doing today?
1: Great. Thank you. And thank you for, for having me on.
0: Well, it's my pleasure, Lori, And I got to tell you, I was blown away by this chronicle, just all the different people that you spoke with, the variety of subjects that you cover on the life of Anthony Bourdain. I'm curious about the process of gathering interviews. How did that go considering that you spoke with such a wide swath of people? Was it mostly by phone in person? Was there email correspondence in there as well?
1: Yeah, it was a, a years long process that started in 2018, uh, pretty shortly after Tony died. Uh, we decided, m- myself and my agent, who was also Tony's agent, and his uh, longtime publisher, Daniel Halpern, we all decided that it was really important to move forward with a biography project that really came from a place of knowing. So I did a lot of interviews in person. Of course, this was well before the COVID 19 pandemic, so there was no concern about meeting people in person. I traveled uh, quite a bit. I went to Los Angeles. I went to London. Of course, a lot of people were in New York and I was able to meet them here. Uh, and then I did a number of interviews by phone, especially after COVID kind of put us into lockdown. So that was, um, it was a very long process. And there were a lot of people that I knew because of my work with Tony and then a lot of people that I hadn't met. And uh, the, the first round of people that I interviewed those would often lead me to the next round. they say, oh, you got to talk to this guy. He worked with us also in the kitchen or make sure you talk to this person that was part of Tony's literary journey. And uh, so it was really kind of an organic process of, of one person begets another begets another.
0: You spoke with Tony's mom, Gladys, before her death in 2020. What light did she shine on Tony for you?
1: She was really interesting in talking about Tony's early, early days and the way that she always saw in him such promise in a way that I'm sure most parents want to see that in their children. But she really had a lot of great specific details about what Tony was like as a little kid and uh, the kind of student that he was. And then later, the kind of uh, rebellious teenager that he was. So she really um, she had perspectives that really no one else could have. And I was so grateful to be able to speak with her before her death.
0: When did he first get into cooking? And was there something that sparked that interest?
1: Yeah, he started cooking. uh, He actually started in restaurants as a dishwasher. And he details that brilliantly in Kitchen Confidential. He really just needed a job. He was kind of mooching off his friends up in Provincetown, Massachusetts, not working, just kind of drinking everyone's beer and and staying for free in a rental house. And someone said, dude, you got to get a job. So he got a job as a dishwasher and saw how cool and powerful and confident the cooks were in this restaurant. And he thought, OK, that's that's what I want to do. I want to be part of that gang. And so he learned started to learn to cook uh, in that environment. And, and it really resonated with him. It was something that he could do that he was good at. It sort of gave him social capital. And from there, he really wanted to um, to solidify his skills so he went to the Culinary Institute of America and then went on to have a, a you know semi illustrious 28 career 28 year career as a cook and chef in New York City
0: and he was also open, not only about the fact that, uh, although I would suggest that maybe he was an above-average cook, considering some of the places that he worked at, that he wasn't the greatest cook necessarily. And he was also some, somebody who dealt with substance abuse at times as well. And I would have to imagine that one fueled the other, and it was a, a, a bit of a cycle there. At its worst, how bad was his drug habit?
1: Well, I only know from what I've heard from other people. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't around at that time, but it sounds like it was it was pretty debilitating. A couple of the guys that he worked with in kitchens at that time talked to me for the book, and they talked about. You know, finding him passed out on a pile of linen in the basement, or missing shifts, and really just kind of losing focus in a way that's very detrimental to a chef. I mean, you really have to keep your your mind straight, at least uh, while you're running the line, while you're running a busy service. So, I think it really did cut into the kinds of jobs that he was able to get and the kinds of jobs he was able to keep. I know at some point he was selling valuables in order to make money to, uh, to support his drug habit. And then kind of unbelievably, he was able to to kick the habit without a, without going to rehab, without doing a 12 step. Uh, he did get on methadone for a long time. But, um, you know, he, he talks about uh, he kind of looked in the mirror one day and said, you know, I'm somebody that's worth saving. So it's really a kind of a remarkable story.
0: Even going back to his childhood, but also in college and during his time as a cook, it was obvious that he was a very talented writer, and eventually he is getting paid to write. He's actually getting paid at one point in the mid-1990s with cash delivered in brown paper bags. Mm-hmm. What was he working on with De Niro that ultimately fizzled out during this time?
1: So he became partners with two brothers, Rob and Webb Stone, who were kind of uh, film developers. They would take uh, nonfiction books and develop them into film ideas. So they got Tony involved in a project that was supposed to tell the story of a very corrupt, a true story of a very corrupt New York City detective who was very willing to share all of his exploits and anecdotes. And, uh, you know, he just sort of... uh, Fought and and uh, slept his way through life, and didn't didn't really, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't a, a stand up guy at all, but had a, lots and lots of great stories. And uh, so Tony was working with Robin Webb to to get this guy's story into a really punchy kind of fictionalized version. The guy eventually got cold feet because he realized that he had he had, you know, put himself in jeopardy by sharing so much of his criminal past. So it didn't ultimately work out. But I think they had a really good time meeting with this guy and hearing his crazy stories.
0: Although it wasn't his first book, Kitchen Confidential is obviously what really started to put Tony on the map. How was the seed planted for Kitchen Confidential? And was it a relatively seamless process once he started writing it all the way through its publishing?
1: Well, the seed was planted by uh, Tony writing just an essay that really was meant to amuse himself and his friends and kind of collate all of these little stories that he had been telling over the years in bars after service or on the line during service, just different stories about his past and his experiences in the restaurant business. He wrote this 2000 word essay. He intended to publish it in a free local downtown New York newspaper, and they accepted it. They were ready to go. And at the last minute, for, for reasons that no one quite understands, they killed the piece. And so his mother took it and got it into the hands of David Remnick, who was the brand new editor of the New Yorker magazine. He loved it. He published it in its entirety. And that got Tony a ton of attention. And from there, uh, that led to a contract for Kitchen Confidential, which was the book that kind of broke him out. So it really wasn't, wasn't a seamless process. This piece kind of bounced around a little bit. It was something that he had been working on for years. And it was really just a series of of um of good luck of instances of good luck and good timing and his mother having a little bit of juice with the new yorker and you know the rest is history
0: why do you think that book remains so special i didn't read it for the first time until about five years ago and was just blown away why do you think that book has been able to stand the test of time
1: well he has such a distinctive voice on the page i mean it just draws you in he really knows exactly how to tell a story exactly how much detail to share. It's so funny. I think when it first came out, it was truly shocking and it truly was unlike anything else. And you've seen a lot of people try and imitate that style, but I think it's Tony's literary voice and his way of of revealing enough about himself so that you trust him as a narrator and and uh, any kind of arrogance that might come across on the page is really balanced out by this humility and this sense of like, I'm just a regular guy. I made plenty of mistakes and I'm going to tell you hilariously what they were and uh, and entertain you for 250 pages. So it really it really is just a just a perfect example of the form.
0: Eventually, that book and the ensuing celebrity led to some TV opportunities. Why was he reluctant to do television at first?
1: Well, I think working in the kitchen for 28 years, uh, you really kind of develop this bunker mentality, right? And, And you sort of it's us against the world. So chefs and cooks, especially back then, were really these unknown kind of underdogs that didn't didn't even get to see the light of day, didn't get to meet the people in the dining room. And they sort of took pride in this anonymity and this this underdog status. So then when suddenly you're put on the other side of a television camera, and you have the opportunity to become famous. I think Tony really felt this sense of like, oh, no, I'm I'm kind of becoming the, everything that I hated. You know, I'm becoming this kind of phony uh, television guy, even though I think he, he never he never it never seemed phony. He was always very genuine on camera. But I think there was just this fear Of turning into a hypocrite and turning into the guy that he used to make fun of, you know, working late nights in kitchens. And I think he got over that at some point, but it really informed all of his work, you know, that ambivalence and that tension between who he was and who he thought he ought to be and, and, you know, his old life and his new life in a way that I think ultimately made for really compelling television.
0: Was he a natural from the jump when he did actually uh, start doing stuff in front of the camera?
1: No, not at all. And this was something that I I really hadn't realized until I spoke with his uh, producing partners, Chris Collins and Lydia Tenalia. They told this great story of how Tony was, they took cameras into the kitchen and he was a natural there because he was in his element and he was very comfortable and confident, cocky even, and really entertaining. And then once they got him out in the field, they all got on a plane and flew to Japan and started shooting. And he was completely he clammed up he was shy he didn't know what to say he was deeply uncomfortable very very awkward and it was definitely a a learning and growing process in those first few years of Tony really accepting what was expected of him being on television and, and being a television host
0: a different country in Asia became very important to Tony over the years why did he love Vietnam so much
1: well, he Tony was such a voracious reader of, of so many different subjects, and one subject that really fascinated him was the U.S. involvement in Vietnam in the 1960s and 70s, and even farther back than that, CIA Cold War stuff in general in 1950s and 60s. So he was deeply, deeply well-read about all the political and social intrigue around that place and so he he was going into a place that he knew a lot about but had never seen before he was also a big fan of graham green's novel the quiet american which is kind of the quintessential um, vietnam novel written from a western perspective so then he showed up there and he, he has all of these ideas and stories in his mind and it's a, it's a frankly beautiful, and, and especially in the year 2000, largely untouched place. And so it was just, uh, for a guy who really hadn't traveled at all, but had a lot of fantasies about travel, this was just sort of the ultimate destination. And the food is incredible. The smells are amazing. You can ride a scooter everywhere. You know, it's just so, uh, so very different. And I think it really lined up with his fantasy of what this place was like in his mind's eye.
0: How did no reservations come to be
1: so tony and his, his uh production partners did two seasons of a show called a cook's tour and then they left uh with the food network where they had been working uh because the, the network really wanted them to go in a different direction one of them to stay home more one of them to do more competitions and barbecue trucks and they really wanted to keep traveling and keep being out on the road and seeing the world and so they put together the idea for no Reservations. And pitched it around and uh, you know after some fits and starts the travel channel took a chance on them now they really hadn't done much travel television oddly enough they really were kind of a poker channel and they really saw the potential in a show with a guy like tony who had a little bit of a track record who had such great charisma and was really committed to making the best possible tv show he could so They took a chance. And that was a very fruitful uh, collaboration for a long time.
0: Yes, it was. And he traveled all over the place, including into some crazy spots that turned war torn on a dime. Why did a Mm -hmm. shoot in Beirut change the course of Tony's life?
1: Well, yeah, so they went to Beirut in 2006, really intending to tell the story of this place that was kind of opening up, getting a little more democratic. Young people were, were enjoying some freedoms and being out in the world. And it was really that it felt like it was on the cusp of a new era. And right about a couple of days after they got there, uh, a 10 day war broke out with Israel and suddenly they had to stop shooting. And they were kind of sequestered in a in a luxury hotel and just waiting to see what would happen. The airport was bombed. There was really no way out. Uh, they did keep shooting as much as they could within the hotel. And eventually they shot their their exit from the country, which involved, uh, you know, paying somebody off to get onto a, a big boat, which took them to Cyprus. And then from Cyprus, they were flown back to the States. Uh, it was um it was harrowing, you know, I mean, as harrowing as it can be without being on the front lines, without actually uh, experiencing combat, just the idea of being stuck in a place, stuck in the middle of a war and uh, and and not really not knowing when they would get back again. So Tony had a girlfriend back in the States and they were so happy to see each other when he finally did got home. get home that they uh, conceived a child and for that reason decided to get married. And so it really. Uh, went from a kind of casual, fun relationship to suddenly Tony had a, a wife and a baby in the in a span of a very short period
0: of time. You spoke with his daughter for this book. Was that the most difficult conversation for you to have?
1: In some ways, yeah. I mean, she's a very smart uh, kid with a great head on her shoulders, and so sh- it wasn't difficult to speak with her. It's a pleasure to speak with her. But mm-hmm. of course, I wanted to be. Very careful and sensitive about the kinds of questions I asked. Uh, you know, there's it's one thing to really get into all of the the good, the bad, and the ugly with an adult, uh, but with a child who has lost a parent, you know, you have to just clearly tread lightly. And just uh, she was really uh, helpful in, in sharing some really lovely memories and funny memories, and you know, the really the the best of of who Tony could be. He was a great dad, and he really uh, you know when he was off the road, his priority was to spend time with her.
0: That was uh, very enlightening for sure. And so was his friendship with David Simon of The Wire and Treme fame. David actually had Tony help him with script writing on Treme. Did Tony enjoy that? And how well received were his contributions on the set?
1: he absolutely enjoyed it I, I remember when he got the call uh with you know asking if he would come and be a part of the writer's room for that show and he said this is an absolute high water mark in my career like this is it doesn't really get any better than this to be to be invited into a writer's room with david simon you know whose work tony respected immensely already it was just a really exciting experience for him and he got to go down to new orleans a couple times and a lot of times because of his scheduled traveling he would write a script and send it in and we would be you know kind of passing it back and forth by email uh so yeah it was absolutely a dream come true for him and he was such a natural writing these kitchen scenes you know just it was a a world that he knew so well and uh and you know he was funny and he was really good at dialogue so it was uh, an absolute um, an absolute pleasure for him
0: What made Tony's partnership with CNN such a natural one that turns what he was doing from really, really good into a work of art? Wow.
1: Yes. You know, CNN really allowed Tony and his crew to go deeper, go farther, go to places that were a little more dangerous in some cases, more extreme and really tell stories that, although there was always some element of food, food wasn't necessarily the whole story, or even the jumping-off point. A lot of times, uh, it really depended on where they went. You know, for years and years and years, Tony really wanted to go to the Congo, and it took many years of of, of disappointment and planning, and then having things stop because it was a it was not a logistically easy place to get to. And CNN offered. The kind of deep logistics and security, and just the kind of worldwide network that allowed him and his crew to go in, knowing that they would be safe, knowing that they would be able to get from place to place and really tell those stories. And, you know, it gives you a kind of credibility in the field if you go in and say, We're with CNN everybody knows what that is all around the world. You know, uh, they, they know that you're with a news organization. Uh, and Tony was really, really well supported by his network. You know, they, they really, they understood what he was doing. And for the most part, they left, let him alone and let him just tell the stories the way that he and his crew wanted to. So it was a, it was an incredibly fruitful collaboration and it really helped CNN move into a space of, uh, of doing, um, you know, non-news content that still really provided an informational takeaway for its viewers.
0: One of the parts unknown episodes was in Mississippi. Why did Tony miss a, a shoot in a bar in Mississippi while the crew was there?
1: <laughs> well, you'll see in the book. One of his directors, Ben, tells a story of. Uh, of setting up a shoot in a bar in Mississippi. And it was an unusually cold night for that part of the country. And they managed to get people out to be in the scene. And Tony's flight was a little bit delayed. And then he he landed and he called the director, Ben, who was pretty new and pretty nervous. And he said, oh, sorry, man. I ran into Mick Jagger and my in my hotel lobby, he invited me to a party. So I'm not coming to the shoot. (laughs) And, uh, that was, uh, that was a tough, tough nut for, you know, Ben was not happy, but you know, what do you do? It's Mick Jagger. You know, you gotta, you gotta, go with it so Tony or you know Ben said all right I, I understand you know but it was I think in a way he was testing Ben but I think he also was like I'm not going to
0: miss a party with Mick Jagger hell no anybody who doesn't <laughs> understand that needs to uh, reassess their priorities you know yeah. Tony was obviously a, a major celebrity in his own right I think it was the Mike Tyson effect where he probably couldn't go many places in public without being recognized by people having people approach asking for autographs wanted to talk to him for a couple of minutes just how taxing did that Celebrity become on him over the years. Yeah,
1: you know, I think up until maybe the last year or two, I don't know that it was terribly taxing. You know, mm-hmm. he was always very careful to say, "This is the price I've paid. This is the the deal that I made." You know, in order to live this beautiful life and travel and make television and you know stay out of the kitchen and 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 do these things i've always wanted to do that's the price i pay is is you know a, la- a lack of privacy and if somebody wants an autograph in the in the airport like it's not a big deal you know but i do think in the last couple of years after doing it for so long after his profile getting higher and higher i think it did start to wear on him and he talked a little bit about becoming sort of increasingly agoraphobic. Uh, I think, you know, the rise of the selfie and the rise of social media and, and it becoming kind of a of a thing for people to not only just get an autograph, but to get a picture with you and to maybe film an interaction. You know, I think that that just becomes tiring if you just want to Uh, be a little bit anonymous and go downstairs and and get a a candy bar from the deli. It suddenly becomes, you know, a a major production. (laughs) So he did talk about that, but he was I will say that whenever he was approached, he was extremely gracious. And, uh, you know, I never saw him uh, tell somebody to go away or tell somebody off. He was always willing to to do the selfie or shake a hand or say hi or, you know, uh, sort of give it back to the people.
0: That is incredible. I would become extremely disgruntled having to do that uh, over an Mm -hmm. extended period of time. Now, chapter 46 is a compilation of people in his life acknowledging a shift in his persona around 2015 to 2016. You had worked with him for years at this point. Is that something that you noticed as well, Lori? And if so, why do you think it happened?
1: Yeah, there was definitely a shift. uh, And I think it, it, um, It coincides with the fact that his second marriage had come to an end and and he was a little bit at odds, a little bit lost in his life. And uh, he was a a deeply, deeply romantic person. And I think like anyone else, he just he wanted to be loved. And and I think that uh, to have a romantic partner was was the highest priority for him. And when those things ultimately proved to be disappointing, they were maybe more disappointing for him than for other people. So he, uh, you know, his marriage ended and then he got into a new relationship and uh, he was a he was a, somebody who was so enthusiastic about the things that he liked. He was like a thousand percent in on everything. So then when he got into this new relationship and fell in love, it was like a rebirth in a way. And he would talk about it to anyone who would listen. And he was just he was all in again. You know, he put everything in that basket in a way that was you know, a little bit unusual for a man of his age and experience. And I think a lot of people uh, notice that. And, you know, there that's I think that's the chapter you're referring to everyone just sort of being amazed by how almost like a teenage boy he was like in his in his true obsession in this relationship.
0: Bill Buford, who is a, a previous guest on this program, said that from his observations of Tony that he was pretty insecure with women. Do you agree with that assessment?
1: Yeah. You know, it's not something that I necessarily saw firsthand when I, when I, uh, worked with him, but I can see it now, you know, doing this, this book, doing all these interviews, all of the the thinking and the rethinking that you do in the wake of a suicide, I, it makes more sense to me now. I mean, you know, he was, he was married to his first wife for 20 years and they were together from the time he was in junior high. So, uh, you know, I I think that he probably had some, some learning to do after the fact, you know, you kind of have to catch up a little bit if, if you, if you're, you've had the same girlfriend for 35 years. So I think, yeah, he definitely wasn't, um, he definitely wasn't one of these guys that, that was, uh, that sort of swaggered around women. You know, I think he really respected women. He definitely uh, surrounded himself with strong women in professional positions. And uh, I found that women were it was much easier for women to sort of tell him what to do and to get him to do what they wanted him to do than it was uh, for men, was men who I think had sort of a, a subservient position to him because of his his sort of the swaggering persona that he projected.
0: And the new girlfriend that you referenced a couple of answers ago was Asia Argento. Uh, she is not represented in this book. Did you actually request to speak with her?
1: You know, I didn't. Uh, She is a very public figure with with, uh, you know, a lot of interest from the press about anything that she has to say or do. So she has given a number of extensive interviews in the wake of Tony's death. And she has a very clear point of view about uh, what happened before and after his death. So. Um, my focus with this book was to really give a give a space and give voice to people who don't have that kind of uh, platform, public platform. People who, but people who have a perspective on it all. So, if anyone feels that they, you know, they're missing her voice, it is certainly available to anyone with an internet connection. And uh, if, you know, she she has had many opportunities to to tell uh, her side of the story. So, I didn't feel like it was necessary to to just get sort of the same the same story in this book. I really wanted to leave space for 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 the, for everyone else. You know, Tony had a long life. That relationship was 2 years, but he lived uh, you know, nearly 61, 62, I'm sorry. So, uh, there there were a lot of stories to be told in this book.
0: Completely understandable. Now, Asia worked on several episodes of Parts Unknown, including directing the Hong Kong episode. Why was that shoot such a disaster?
1: It was a really tough time for everyone. Uh, The the original director at the very last minute uh, had to have emergency gallbladder surgery. So, and a director really spends quite a bit of time and energy planning a shoot uh, in advance, about six weeks to two months. And so to have him be replaced by someone who hadn't had any of that time with the rest of the crew and the planning is always a delicate operation. Uh, and so everything changed uh when, when tony insisted that asia be the director and uh there were just some strong very strong personalities on that shoot and ultimately the some conflict between asia and uh, one of the cinematographers uh, who was who was a veteran and had been shooting with tony for 12 years and ultimately that guy was let go from the shoot uh, which was a surprising and and you know really unfortunate turn of events for everyone so i, I think it just, I raised a lot of red flags for people. Uh, It just the the way that uh, the the way it all went down was was really unfortunate and really, really ugly for for those of us, uh, you know, who had been around for a long time.
0: Now, that cinematographer, his name was Zach, correct? That's right. Did he interview for this book?
1: He didn't, you know. I asked him a number of times, and ultimately, he didn't. So, uh, and I understand, you know. He, I think, he uh, is trying to to move on. I mean, he is brilliant and accomplished, and he's done a lot of uh, feature film work. And, uh, you know, he's but but is. I think it was also just an incredibly painful episode, as you can imagine. You know, being. Being a, a, a veteran uh, cinematographer on a, on a set for so long with the same uh, star and then sort of being sort of summarily dismissed over a, a, what really was a small conflict. I think it's I think it's a really tough thing. So I don't blame him for wanting to, to just sort of keep quiet and move on
0: understandable for sure all right last couple of questions Lori. first off i was on the air here in austin when i learned of tony's death and it was one of those moments much like with norm mcdonald a couple of weeks ago for me where the guy had made such a profound impact on my life that even though i had never met him before it was pretty impossible to do anything for the rest of the day and something that li- really lingered for a few days afterwards for you as somebody that was close with him and just uh, got to be around that brilliance First off, I guess how did you learn the news, and secondly, mm-hmm. just what did that do to you in its immediate aftermath?
1: Yeah, well, so I, I got a call um, very early in the morning. I think it was about four thirty in the morning in New York uh, from Tony's agent, who was also my agent, and uh, just letting me know that that Tony had taken his own life. And you know, we really were, time was of the essence because we had to make sure we let certain people know directly before they heard it on the news. And we knew that the news was going to break uh, a few hours later. So, uh, you know, it was the call was in part to let me know the news and then also to start, um, you know, making some phone calls, some really painful and difficult phone calls. Uh, So I I think I think the first the first several hours were just shock and disbelief um, and and trying to just, you know, shore things up and make sure that that we that we reached everybody we needed to reach in, in a short amount of time. And then, you know, just a, a very long period of, of of grief, you know, which is a which is a complicated thing. Uh, I was very grateful to have this book to work on, and also uh, World Travel, which is a book that Tony and I had started writing together before he died. So, for the next few years, I was able to kind of work through my grief with a purpose—to finish these books and to talk to people who had known him and worked with him. So, I felt very lucky to have a to have a project and a purpose and to not just have to simply say goodbye all at once. But this has been kind of a long process of saying goodbye to Tony by completing this project.
0: Last question, Lori. In your opinion, what is Tony's lasting legacy?
1: Well, I think uh, Tony really gave hope to a lot of people who uh, thought they felt they might be stuck in a certain place in life. Maybe they were too old to live their dreams or do the things, the creative things they'd always wanted to do. And to see someone like him who just who who worked uh, in anonymity up until he was 44 and then followed his dreams, you know, did this creative project and, and you know, lived in a lot of ways his best life. I think that's really that's really inspiring. Now, can everyone write a best-selling book and, and be a television travel host? Definitely not, but, but you can, you can do, uh, you know, whatever the creative thing is, write the novel, write the song, you know, uh, paint the picture, or, you know, even if it's just, uh, you know, clean out the garage, something Mm -hmm. where you just change your perspective and, uh, and, and kind of break out of that, it's, it's uh, you know, 44 isn't that old, you know? So um, I, I think uh, just getting people out into the world to change their perspective and open their eyes, I think that's really a, a, a pretty, incredible legacy that he's left for us
0: beautifully said there she is Lori wooliver a writer and editor who spent close to a decade assisting and co-authoring books with anthony bourdain that includes appetites and world travel a number one new york times bestseller and she has just written the excellent new biography bourdain the definitive oral biography you can get it now wherever books are sold Lori, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this very important chronicle absolutely thank you for having me Join me next time when I speak with New Yorker, staff writer, and best-selling author Susan Orlean on On Animals. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.